Hi, everybody. I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club, where we bring together the big names in tech to talk about the biggest ideas. And one of the sad big ideas facing our country right now is that depression and anxiety are up 300% in the wake of COVID. Between people being stuck and working from home and uh, being isolated from their families, between just the crushing pressure of not knowing what's gonna happen with this virus, as well as just all the normal day-to-day -day stuff that people have to deal with, you know, we're seeing this explosion of issues in mental health, but we don't have enough therapists there to help them. They aren't empowered to be able to build companies and therapy practices to assist those many patients and so today we're going to be talking about some of the best new approaches to solving the mental health crisis, preventions and treatments. And so today we're joined by Jake Cooper, co-founder of Grow Therapy, which uh, equips therapists with the software they need to be able to launch their own therapy practices, as well as his co-founder, Minaj Kangaraj, who was also an MD and MBA from Harvard, uh, as well as Nidhi Tiwari, who is a mental health therapist and expert in this space. So really excited to have you guys all here to talk about such an important topic. So with that, Jake, maybe you could just jump in and give us a little bit of a lay of the land, a state of the union of where mental health is right now and why we're in such dire need of new approaches. Definitely happy to. I think it would be helpful to first start pre-COVID actually. Over the past decade, since 2010, we've made a ton of progress in destigmatization. There's still much more progress to go, but folks for the first time are really a feeling comfortable being vulnerable and actually seeking help for mental health. B, really viewing mental health as both the same in a comprehensive sense with physical health. However, despite the progress we've made in destigmatization, and, and again, there's still much progress to go along, along those lines, there's tremendous barriers for actually uh, seeking, uh, actually receiving help, even if you uh, decide to seek it. Uh, those barriers are the result of uh, many different factors. For one, on just a macro level, there is a balance between the amount of providers that exist in the U.S. versus the just need on the patient side for mental health. Secondly, up until really recently, mental health has been deprioritized by major stakeholders, such as employers and payers, who A, would make it very hard for providers to get a network, and B, have traditionally undercompensated them despite acts passed to uh, remedy these situations, such as the Mental Health Parity Act in 2008 and other more uh, local acts since then. What that has really set the stage for pre-COVID, it just landscaped where there was a real need for mental health. There's people who are affirmatively seeking mental health care, but they effectively couldn't receive it due to not having access to affordable care due to essentially lack of providers and lack of uh, insurances actually reimbursing providers for their care. What's happened in the wake of COVID is those very dynamics have just been materially exacerbated, where if there was a kind of shortage of providers to begin with, it has turned from a major issue into an absolute crisis with rates of anxiety and depression up over 300%, and obviously no increase in provider capacity and limited increase in number of providers. The two silver linings, though, that I will say in a kind of post-COVID world are one, modality shifts, and two, shifts in terms of payer and employer attitudes on mental health. On the modality shifts, telehealth has, the silver lining of COVID as it relates to mental health has been telehealth. Telehealth has gone from 5% adoption pre-COVID to, at the peak of COVID, 95 to 99% of visits 
to right now around 75% of visits. And the reason why it's stabilized still at 75% is because clinicians view it as an effective modality for most patients. Patients view it uh, by and large as a convenient and accessible way to uh, receive care. And that's gone far ways to alleviate the kind of local supply demand dislocations as its extended providers reach to national level. The second real major positive change that we're just really starting to see in the wake of COVID as a change in attitude amongst both employers and payers for the value of behavioral health and how they internally value it, whether it's at the behest of employers or just through recognition of the medical expenses that otherwise would accrue for untreated behavioral health conditions. Payers are one, expanding networks that have either been formally closed or effectively closed, and B, reimbursing at levels that are more commensurate with the value that providers are actually providing, as opposed to paying rates that we've seen are as low as 60% of Medicare rates prior. I'll pause there because I I know it's a a lot of background, but hopefully that gives you a good kind of landscape to to go off of. No, that's that's great. You know, we've seen mental health being destigmatized, but we still have a shortage of providers, a lack of insurance coverage, and those things have only accelerated since COVID. And while telehealth is this sort of silver lining, and now we have 75% of visits moving in that way, uh, we still need more to be done. And so really excited to hear a little bit more from Nidhi, as well as uh, Dr. Emily Anhalt, who runs a startup called COA, which is a gym for your mental health. And so Nidhi, maybe you could just start us off with, what's your perspective on where where we are right now and what you're seeing as a provider yourself in terms of like the the increase in need for these kind of services. Thank you so much, Josh, for inviting me to this conversation. It's a pleasure to be here and to meet everyone. I think that there's been an immense increase in terms of demand for mental health-related services. And I know that when I opened my private practice uh, in 2019 and went full-time in 2020, um, I didn't expect that in March 2020, I would uh, be shutting down my in-person practice and moving fully to telehealth. And so uh, with that pivot, uh, I have never been fuller. I've, I've been consistently full for about 18 months now because because there's just a tremendous demand of um, individuals who are struggling with anxiety, depressive symptoms. And then if they had any pre-existing traumatic experiences for many individuals, those experiences have been triggered up by the isolation uh, and the, the lack of connection that we've been able to have through this pandemic. And so, you know, I think from a private practice uh, clinician perspective, we've had to take on a lot of clients and sometimes it can be difficult to balance that and the demands of running a practice um, managing, you know, the systems as Jake was describing uh, from a business standpoint and also simultaneously managing ourselves as human beings who, um, you know, have our own families and our own mental health concerns as well. So it's been quite a tremendous time. Um, I'm grateful to be able to help individuals, but I do completely agree with what Jake said that we have a, a dearth of those who are helping individuals who are struggling with mental health concerns and we really need to look at systemically what's happening there uh, with the low reimbursement rates and the, the struggles with being able to get credentialed with insurance. Amazing. I really appreciate that on the ground perspective. And Dr. Anhalt, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your perspective of how this has been evolving and what, what you see as maybe the most pressing needs right now uh, in this space. 
What a big question. I mean, I, I definitely echo what's been said here that a lot of what I'm seeing people struggle with is not necessarily a totally new kind of struggle, but an exacerbation of whatever people might have been struggling with before. So if you were a person who doesn't handle uncertainty well before, well, you're probably having a really hard time now. If you were feeling overwhelmed and tired at work before, well, you are probably extremely tired and burned out now. And that I'm actually seeing across the board. I just saw a study done by monster.com that said that 95% of people they surveyed are considering changing jobs. And that's not because 95% of people hate their work. It's because we're all exhausted and we want something to change. And our jobs are one of the things we have agency over. And so we're all wondering if maybe we make a change there, we'll feel better. But, you know, my caution there is everywhere you go, there you are. And we all, I think, just have some healing to do after what's essentially been a collective trauma that we've all been through. So a lot of anxiety, depression, burnout, overwhelm, discomfort with the uncertainty, all kinds of things there. And if there is a silver lining of all of this, I think it's been that it's brought a topic to the forefront that's always been really important, which is mental and emotional health. And what we're trying to do at COA is help people understand that if we work on our mental and emotional health more proactively, think about it more like going to the gym instead of waiting until everything falls apart and we feel like we have to go to the doctor, that we'll be better equipped to handle the inevitable and unforeseen difficult things that life can throw at us like what we've all been through over this past two years. Yeah, that's that's super helpful to understand. And I think, yeah, we in America, we kind of have this big emphasis on treatment over prevention. If you just look at processed foods and how much sugar we're eating, you know, we have so many down the line health uh, outcomes that are really negative because we're refusing to do anything on the preventative side. And so, you know, I think that that's a, a, a hallmark of the American system that really does need to change. And so with that, I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of historically how we've dealt with, with mental health services so we can get a good understanding of what we can do to massively improve on that. Um, yeah, anyone wants to jump in and talk us a little through a little bit of like the history of dealing with mental health in America. Jake, you want to help us out? Yeah. How, how far back are we talking, Josh? <laughs> I mean, probably not like more than a hundred years or so, but certainly since like World War II and since changes to how health insurance worked is maybe a good place to start. Well, I think for one, you mentioned World War II and I know we were talking about this earlier, but it, from my vantage point, the kind of original sin of U.S. healthcare has been employer-sponsored plans. As a brief kind of a history tidbit, during World War II, there was essentially wage ceilings that were instituted because of labor shortages brought about by the war. And how companies essentially would fight to win employees is they actually, because they couldn't pay them more, they decided to give them health insurance coverage. And from that kind of salary arbitrage dynamic was born a system in which folks received their benefits through employers, which meant that their entire ability to pay for healthcare was tethered to maintaining their position at a job. It meant that there was all these agency issues where essentially you weren't paying for your own healthcare and a government wasn't paying for your healthcare. An employer who really, the average person stays at a job around two and a half to three years, an employer who really was only economically incented to care for your physical health for three years was essentially paying for all your healthcare and making healthcare decisions on your behalf. There's a ton of kind of evolution of behavioral health since then, but I think the reason I bring that up World War II as, as a kind of turning point is one of the issues with behavioral health, and from, from my vantage point, has been so the reason that it's been so undercompensated has been under-prioritized by employers for such a, a long period of time. And the employers have been ultimately the ones who tend to pay for people's healthcare. I do feel, and I went through some of the history before, but I do feel that's 
uh, started to change really beginning in around a decade ago as there's been an increased societal recognition of the importance of mental health, both generally in life and as a kind of part of someone's overall health. But it wasn't really until post-COVID that employers, and we still obviously have work to be done, but post-COVID, there really seemed to be an acceleration in employers' prioritizations of mental health, which has manifested in a couple of different ways. One, you've seen employers make decisions to essentially add on supplemental forms of mental health, whether it's through an EAP plan, whether it's working with companies like Coa, for instance, or whether it's been pushing insurance companies to actually reimburse better and increase their network size so that they can access providers such as the ones that we help enable at Grow. I'll pause there because I, I know there's a lot of great perspectives in the room. I'd love to hear thoughts from the group. One thing I'll just throw in. So my co-founder, Alexa, tweeted this recently, and it's been on my mind really strongly, which is the idea that burnout is the workplace injury of the 21st century. Back when a lot of the work that was being done included physical labor, there had to be a movement at some point where people's physical health was protected. And that's what led to workers' comp and you know, now thoughtful benefits like making sure that people have actual physical health days that they can take off and, you know, memberships to a gym and incentives if you take care of yourself in this way. But these days, it's really emotional and mental labor that is fueling most industries. And so it follows that we need to be as thoughtful about that as we were with people's physical health when we were asking them to use their bodies. So I think that companies recently have come to understand that it's good for the bottom line and it's just necessary to have any kind of functional business to be supporting people's ongoing mental and emotional health if you want them to continue to contribute in a meaningful way. Yeah, I can add here as well um, that I, I think one of the biggest struggles when it comes to our current healthcare system is that there's a lot of inequity when it comes to insurance. And so part of the biggest struggle, I think, for us as clinicians um, that are providing services is that insurance companies kind of dictate the length of the session. So whether we're able to do a 45-minute session versus a 55-minute session, uh, the duration in terms of frequency and how long a client can be in treatment. Uh, and often, you know, we have to kind of grapple with the insurance companies in order to get the reimbursement for the services provided. Uh, I know with Anthem, there has been recently a uh, case that's come up where locally in um, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University Health Systems, they owe owe the health system over $385 billion. I think that the COVID-19 pandemic further strained a broken system that needs to be re-examined and looked at. And it creates challenges not only for the providers, but also in terms of accessibility for services from the client perspective perspective. If you don't have clinicians that take insurance because the rates are so low, I'm talking sometimes getting reimbursed $40 for a session, for an hour-long session, that may not not be sustainable for a therapist. And so then that means that it further contributes to the lack of clinicians available. And ultimately, the patient is the person that suffers. That's a wonderful perspective. So I want to start moving towards solutions because I think sometimes problems with these kind of discussions is you spend your whole time framing the problem and how bad it is, and we don't get to hear about what's actually getting better and where there's opportunity uh, to fix things and, and improve. So we'd love to open it up and maybe, maybe Emily, you can start us off because I know you have a great broad view of what's been going on in the industry, but what are some of the more creative approaches you're seeing uh, towards dealing with this mental health crisis beyond maybe traditional therapy and also especially on that more preventative and rather than just on the treatment and after we've already been injured mentally. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll start by saying what I think is not the right solution that I have seen a lot of companies doing, which is paying therapists less. Exactly what's just been spoken, that it it costs so much money to become a therapist and it costs so much time and effort to become a good therapist that it's just not doable to do it in an ongoing way for very little money. And what you end up getting is people who you know, are brand new and don't have the experience or who are cramming 50 patients into a week and not doing really great work with any of them. And I just don't really think that's the way forward. I think that what we need is broad change to insurance coverage, to how much it costs to become a therapist, perhaps reimbursement of therapists, all of that. But in the meantime, while we're working toward that, our approach at COA is the idea that if you work on your emotional health more proactively, you're actually likely to prevent a lot of the emotional issues that might have sent you to a therapist down the line. Because what we know about much of our emotional health struggles is that, yes, you know, these things do run in families, genetically, et cetera, but a lot of what people will struggle with is a result of not having had the support that they needed along the way to feel through and deal with tough things, and that those things accumulate into something very overwhelming and hard to manage. And so if we learn how to communicate boundaries, if we learn how to feel tough things, if we learn how to lean into discomfort instead of trying to numb it away, if we learn how to lean on and depend on other people and also take agency for ourselves, that we're actually going to prevent a lot of really difficult and painful mental health struggles. And so that's what we're trying to do at COA. Another idea I have, I'm just going to throw out there, I'm not doing anything to move forward on this idea, but I would love if anyone stole it and move forward with it, is that it takes a really long time and costs so much to become a therapist because you're learning about the full spectrum of mental health functioning. So to become a therapist, you learn how to treat someone who is dealing with a little bit of anxiety and you learn how to treat someone who's dealing with you know, psychosis or schizophrenia. And I think the rise of the coaching industry is kind of a response to the idea that there are people who want to support those out there who are relatively high functioning, but just want to feel a little bit better or level up, who don't necessarily want to go through all of that schooling. And so I've been thinking that there needs to be some kind of training program for people who, you know, sort of like coaching, but you're really trained and licensed and you have supervision and you have to get hours and, you know, you're held to ethical standards, but you're really trained how to support people through the perhaps less extreme mental health struggles that all of us are grappling with right now. So I think some kind of new type of schooling and licensure and accreditation needs to come out to support that kind of middle band of, of functioning. I'll just throw that out there as an idea. Love it. Uh, Minaj, we'd love to get you involved. Maybe you could tell us any other creative solutions that you guys have seen, and then we'll d- dive a little deeper into what grow has been doing here. Yeah, absolutely. I think Dr. Arnold was getting on to a really important point there that there's kind of a, a, a spectrum of acuity and thinking about how we can map solutions to that spectrum is is a really smart solution. Um, just given that we're not going to be able to solve the, the supply and demand imbalances overnight. And I've seen this pyramid published online that you could probably look up, but basically Towards the bottom of the pyramid, there are things that we can do and and enable in our communities that are potentially less specialized, like meditation apps, like, you know, just a a more general breadth of just wellness uh, categorized uh, options for folks. And then you have the next level up and maybe that's having coaches or like peer specialists that can help people with grappling with less severe stressors or challenges that hit their life. And then you have your next level up with therapists, and then maybe you uh, triage up to psychiatrists. 
when you need medication. And so there's this whole spectrum. And I think that there's a lot of room for us to be continue to be creative on how we think about the, the lower acuity end and meet the, the really large volume of need that we're seeing for people that just have better mental health. And I think Emily was sort of alluding to the fact that that's a really smart solution, right? And, and we should really encourage more people to be creative there. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that I've seen that I think are really interesting are moving towards uh, some more like adaptogen and, and diet-focused things that can really help our mental health. I know PIM is a company that makes little like candies that can help with some of uh, your mental health, to help smooth some of that stuff out. Really interested in the meditation partners and how to make this something that multiple people can participate in because I think a lot of people think of meditation as being a very like solitary experience. And we know that we're, we're social animals and that when we have other people to help us keep stay accountable, we're a lot more likely to do things. And so you've seen like things like gym buddies and apps that actually help you stay accountable for going to the gym. I think we need to see more of that uh, in the mental health space as well. I think it's been great to see some of the companies like Calm and Headspace growing and showing that there really is mainstream interest here, which I hope inspires more investors to get to get involved. And we've seen companies like BetterUp getting a lot larger by democratizing access to coaching and saying that, no, it's not just for CEOs and high-powered executives executives, but you know, everybody on your team deserves some access to coaching, even if it's more in like one to many formats or with asynchronous materials where you know you can read or watch videos, things like that can still really matter, especially if you put people in a comprehensive plan where instead of just throwing them in and say, go look on YouTube and look for things for mental health, but say like here's you know a, a playlist of 10 videos that if you watch, you know, one per day, you'll start to get a better handle on some of this stuff. I also think that there's great opportunities with things like virtual reality to be able to really lock out out distractions and make it feel like gamify things like meditation that I think can really be additive uh, on that level. And I think in general, physical activity and just the rise of things like yoga, wellness, uh, and even things like Peloton, Tempo, and these you know home workout machines can really make it a lot more uh, easier for people to get involved. And you know those endorphin rushes have such a huge impact on your mood. And I know that like a lot of times the days that I feel the worst are also the days I'm the most inclined to skip my workouts. And and those are the days that I end up feeling even worse at the end of the day. So those are some of the things I'm excited to see here. One of the things we've seen a lot of, though, is this kind of peer-to-peer therapy that instead of being you know one-to-one or even one-to-many from like a licensed provider, we've seen people just kind of try to be there for each other in groups or in group chats. Curious to hear if you guys think that that's effective or you know, should it really be people that are a bit have a bit more experience if you're really coming at it from a more medical angle versus you know maybe this is fine if you're calling yourself a coach and people don't expect it to be for more high acuity issues. But if somebody's really dealing with really, really tough stuff, maybe they should be seeing someone directly and not in like a peer-to-peer app, even if it's cheaper. So we'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on some of those solutions as well as the peer-to-peer therapy space. Something I believe really strongly is that emotional fitness and mental health is an individual journey, but a communal pursuit. So the way I think about it is like, when you go to the gym, you have to lift your own weights. No one can lift them for you. But it's a hell of a lot easier to do that when there are people around you who are also lifting weights and when there's someone to spot you and when there's someone who's newer who shows you where you've been and when there's someone more experienced who shows you where you're going. Like the community aspect is exceptionally important. We don't exist in isolation. We exist in relation to other people. So we do need other people to grow and to heal. But I don't think that you should be, I don't think we should be calling peer support therapy. 
because it's not therapy. It's peer support. And there's certainly an important use for that. But therapy is a very specific kind of work. And it's not something we can do when we have no training to do it. And I think it's important we distinguish that because the the word itself is getting watered down and people are having negative experiences and then thinking it's not for them. And I do think that we should make sure that people understand that there's a particular kind of support you can only get from your peers and it's worth pursuing. And there's a different particular kind of support that you can only get from someone who's been trained and supervised and understands the complex, nuanced aspects of supporting someone with something that they haven't been able to change their entire life. And and, and now they're really seeking that help with. So I just think distinguishing the two will be important. Okay, Jake, I want to hear a little bit more about the growth therapy journey and how you guys came up with this idea. If you guys aren't familiar, growth therapy uh, is a tool set that helps therapists go and start their own practices, which I think is so important because that gives them the opportunity to really brand around a specialization. And I think the ability to have somebody who works in a specific type of of mental health care or deals with a certain type of anxiety or depression or a certain trigger for those kind of things can really build up a deep well of understanding around them and do better uh, jobs for their patients. And so I really love the idea of more of these therapists being able to start their own businesses, plus the sense of of this kind of being a new part of the passion economy of people saying like, this is something I really care about and it's also a business, but I want to be it to be a great career, not just a job. So Jake, maybe you could tell us like how you guys came up with, with grow therapy and, and what the goal of it is right now. Definitely. So the two founding drivers of grow therapy is one, we were just absolutely heartbroken by the 90% of folks who essentially were priced out of the mental health insurance system because it made it so difficult to actually find a provider that took your insurance. And then secondly, we, from speaking with our clinician friends, we were just very disappointed by the professional opportunities available for most therapists, where essentially 89% of therapists are employed in some capacity. We found that a lot of the employment settings would give their all to their clients and their employers would structurally underappreciate, underpay, uh, and restrict them. Emily mentioned before how there's certain quote-unquote solutions where their solution is to to pay providers less. And that was, in our mind, entirely backwards. So we started Grow with a mission of massively expanding mental health accessibility and affordability by enabling providers as their partner to A, launch their own practice, and B, accept insurance. We go to providers. uh, What we offer really is the kind of comprehensive support of a tech-enabled group. So everything from handling their insurance contracting to handling their marketing distribution to essentially leasing them our EHR, patient management system, our CM system, to giving them a fractional practice manager who on a fractional basis will pick up their phone and help triage intakes to enable them to succeed and then enable them to see the majority of America who relies on insurance to actually pay for their mental health. We've been really proud to have uh, been expanded rapidly over the past year. We, we now work with over 1,200 clinicians that we have partnered with just over the past year across five different states. And we just finished raising our Series A and are uh, super excited to be expanding our team and uh, really just continuing to add folks to our journey who are mission-driven and believe that uh, the status quo and behavioral health needs to change. 
I think that's such an important mission. It's why we're one of your guys' investors at Signal Fire, the fund where I work, uh, because we really believe in this idea that if you can give more therapists the opportunity to build a great job, you can help them employ others, you can grow this industry, and we can st finally start to address this shortage in, in care. But it really brings to light how crazy it is that insurance doesn't cover this, especially when you know you think that a lot of this whole insurance game is designed to keep people on the job, to keep them productive so they can continue to fuel the, you know, the, the economy and, and the capitalist system that we work and live in. Yet mental health is often not covered, even though that's what can so obviously drive down people's uh, pro productivity. So why aren't more insurers covering this stuff right now? Yeah, I guess to speak to that and to just clarify, not all, but most insurances theoretically cover mental health. However, the system itself is set up in a way that it's incredibly arduous and difficult to navigate as an individual. Essentially, with healthcare consolidation in, in the 80s on, a bunch of for-profit companies came into the fold. And to kind of reduce their profit-seeking kind of habits and mentalities, uh, insurance companies put a variety of restrictions and regulations on what they could charge, how often they could charge it. They, stip they increasingly stipulated how they could practice and while a big company with a large back office would be able to support these permutations, and that's what we lend our providers fractionally, it's really difficult to navigate on your own. The one area that is more due to attitude as opposed to just administrative complexity has been on the rate side. And I, I believe that really until recently, payers often just didn't reimburse nearly at the levels they should have. And they still don't by and large, but I do think it is changing because they viewed mental health as essentially more optional, not related to, to physical health. And they were getting away with it because employers themselves, who were the ultimate kind of customers, if you will, payers, weren't doing more to essentially push this as a needed benefit. I think it's been, unfortunately, so painfully obvious in the wake of COVID how important mental health is. And that has precipitated a more recent change in both attitude, but also in payments which we really do hope will lead to, in conjunction with novel solutions, a massive expansion in access. So, Nitty, I know that you started your own therapy practice. What was that like? And, and do you agree that like, there's just a lot of need for these kind of tools? Or you know, what can make it easier for therapists to be able to get out there? Here's your great opportunity to tell Jake what to build for fellow therapists so that, you, that we can make this whole industry a little bit better together. <laughs> Absolutely. I know that when I was in graduate school and doing my my postgraduate training, that I developed a lot of skills, right? I developed a lot of skills in terms of how to be able to be empathic, how to be able to intervene and provide treatment. But something that I never learned in the course of graduate school or all my training thereafter was how to be a businesswoman. Nobody ever taught us how to be entrepreneurs, how to set up systems in our practices, how to be able to get credentialed with insurance. What should you set your rate as? How do you negotiate rates? None of those things were ever taught to us as therapists or as uh, mental health providers. And so, you know, when I first started my practice back in 2018, I felt like I was going into it completely blind. And so I ended up paying a couple thousand dollars to do a boot camp that literally taught me all of these things. It taught me about how to be able to set up my website. How do I write the copy and optimize this SEO? Where do I even market myself? And how do I get myself out there and develop a reputation where clients start to come to me without constantly having to seek them out, right? So uh, software, like what you're talking about with growth therapy, would have been tremendously impactful for me 
early in my career um, as a private practitioner because I, I literally was just trying to figure it out as I went. And I think that being able to have a built-in practice manager, that would have been fantastic, right? Because so much of the time in those initial six months to a year when you're setting up your practice is ensuring that you're you're really on point with getting the intake scheduled, making sure that you're able to see clients regularly, ensuring that all of the documentation and administrative paperwork is being sent off to insurance companies. And those are hours that are spent typically on our own doing those tasks. And so the idea of being able to have somebody built into a platform where they can assist with those uh, sometimes really challenging and arduous tasks, I think sounds fantastic. Um, I also noticed on the Grow Therapy website too, that there's the opportunity to be able to, to kind of market yourself there, which I think is fantastic because having not only the back end built in uh, that's supportive of therapists, but then also naturally having uh, a way to be able to link potential clients with clinicians that serve their particular needs, I think is that that's really the direction we need to be to be moving in. So um, yeah, any opportunities to be able to teach therapists those business skills, I think is just paramount because we're just not equipped. I just wanted to plus one everything that Nitty just said, because we are not taught how to run a business as therapists. I also just want to throw in there, I was not taught at any point in grad school how to support my patients through a pandemic that I was also experiencing at the exact same time. So that's something we're also figuring out as we go. I didn't think of anything that Nitty didn't mention that should be there, except like I said, that I think that there is this dichotomy that's been created where therapy is only for people with really acute, intense mental health problems and coaching is for people who just want support and, you know, to work toward a better version of themselves. And I think that having a sort of coaching-like training for therapists and perhaps some therapy recognition training for coaches would be a really beneficial thing in the world because the two are very blurry and confusing sometimes for people, I think. So I might add that. In terms of how to set up a successful practice, you're just completely thrown in the dark and have to figure out how to do it yourself. So having services like this that don't ask you to charge less than what you're worth, which is what so many of them out there do, would have been profound. Yeah, that seems like a, a really good approach is that to think of how do we improve that handoff where coaches can say, hey, I think this is a cute, an acute enough problem that you should probably see a real therapist. And the therapist might say, hey, like, happy to help you here, but you might even be able to find more affordable care or stuff that's more focused on like career success rather than just like baseline survival if you went to a coach. And I would love to see uh, more of that as well. would love to hear also, you know, what else do you think can be done in terms of on a bigger level? If you think of in terms of regulation or what else could help destigmatize it? Because I think while we certainly have seen a significant destigmatization, people are willing to like talk about it. And I think especially Gen Z, much more willing to talk about the need for therapy. But I still think for a lot of people, especially, you know, millennials, Gen X and above, you know, it still feels like something that like only when I'm really like down in the dumps when everything is going wrong and I feel like I'm just completely unable to help myself. And how do we make it seem like, no, 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 like if you spend a hundred, you know, if you spend $50 a a month on your gym membership, like why don't you think about doing the same for your mental health? If you spend $50 on a single meal when you go out to eat to fill your body with nutrients, like why wouldn't you do the same for your brain? How do we make that leap forward in destigmatization where it becomes a more steady part of more people's uh, budgets? I think that stigma is changed through experience. 
So I think there's a limit to how much that we can just talk about something theoretically and hope that it changes other people's minds. I'd say over the course of my career, I've matched more than 600 people into therapy. And I never convince people that therapy is worth doing from talking about myself as a therapist. It's always from talking about myself as a patient. It's always when I can tell people, here's what therapy did for me, and here's what I realized, and here's what I didn't realize I was hiding from myself, and here are the epiphanies I had, and here's what's changed in my life, and here's how my relationships got healthier, and here's what's different. And in seeing someone who seems relatively high-functioning still benefit and be transparent about the work that they've done, it's convinced a lot of people that it might be something worth considering for themselves. And so what I think we really need is that every single person out there should start by doing their own work, and then to the extent that they feel safe and comfortable, they should be really transparent and open about that work to everyone in their life so that it starts to create a ripple effect of permission and acceptance and support for people to lean into something that they may have convinced themselves that they were all alone in feeling. Because that's what's interesting about most of our mental health struggles. They sort of insidiously convince us that we are alone in it and that no one else would understand and that no one else has really been through it in the same way. Even when we intellectually know that's not true, emotionally it feels true. And so by hearing other people speak up and be really open, it unlocks this ability for us to lean on others as well and to think about getting a similar support for ourselves. Yeah, I think this is especially important for entrepreneurs who deal with just an incredible amount of stress between, you know, the the concept of just having millions of dollars riding on the line to having all these employees that are relying on you for this company to keep going forward. You know, it's very common to hear of like founders just breaking down in tears. And I want that to be more normalized. I want people to know that that's totally okay. And that we often rate ourselves not by absolute value, but by our relative value. We'll say, oh, we're doing a little bit worse than yesterday, especially for entrepreneurs. Like, oh, like one hire didn't work out. One customer dropped, you know, retention dropped a little bit. You know, the investor said no. And it just feels like everything's falling apart. Whereas if they just zoomed out a little bit, they'd still see that they're better off than maybe they were even just a few months beforehand. But it's, we're so used to uh, rating ourselves based on that like relative rank of the last time we we checked in with ourselves. And I think we've gotten to the point where more people are willing to talk about their vulnerabilities and we're moving away from that like perfectly polished Instagram aesthetic where everyone has to put out this like exactly manicured vision of themselves and they can never show any flaws in, the, in their armor. But I think the next step is really saying like, yes, I felt that way. And then I went and actually got help or then I actually went to the therapist. And yeah, there's like doctor client privilege and everything like that. But still, like people should, you know, I want to see more Instagram stories of people walking into their therapist's office or screenshotting their, you know, their telehealth visit. Because I think it's that, like you said, it's that sense that it's not just that we know that it's okay, but the people we know are doing this that makes us feel so much better about it because we are pack animals. And, you know, sometimes we're, I think we're, we're, instinctually wired to not want to appear the weakest link or the weak one in the pack. But when everybody else has to slow down because everyone's feeling these kind of pressures, it gives that opportunity. And so make that space for other people in your lives by being more upfront about when you do procure those kind of services, I think is super important. I couldn't agree more. I did want to touch upon one of the topics you brought up, which is, are there any just low hanging regulatory fruit uh, that is just getting in the way of care? We could probably speak at days for regulations that do more harm than good, but two of the ones that off the bat, I, within healthcare, I, I still feel there's a ton of regulatory capture that laws that just continue to exist solely to serve either existing interests or stakeholders. The two that I find most irrational today are one, licensing. It's so difficult for providers 
to have licensing portability. If you want to see folks in every single state, you have to essentially apply for between 25 and 50 licenses, which strikes me as just purely illogical. The second element too has been regulations that hopefully will change around telehealth. So right now for Medicare and Medicaid clients, if they want to see a provider via telehealth, they have to have seen them once a year in person, which in a world in which we're seeing such efficacy for telehealth seems like a regulation that's in place solely to essentially help folks who are in areas that already have a lot of clients. So I do think there's some changes on the legal side that could incrementally make care a lot more accessible. I mean, there are a lot of people in this country that live far from cities and don't have ready access to be able to go and, and, and see these people in person. And that kind of regulation means that, like, oh, I, I am you know putting the onus on that patient who's already having a tough time and say, hey, drive two hours there and back for your hour long visit. Exactly. They're not even choosing between two options. You're basically just cutting them off from their only source of care, uh, which seems illogical at a minimum from my vantage point. Minaj, we'd love to hear you know, if there's been any other sort of breakthroughs in terms of the research around here, given uh, you know, you have the, both the MBA and MD from Harvard. We'd love to hear your just perspective on you know, how is the industry as a whole kind of coming to grips with this and what is the latest research showing? Have we, have we found any new breakthroughs in this space that are really working? That's a great question, Josh. And I'd love to hear from Emily and Nibi as well uh, on, on what they are, are sort of seeing. I'd say from the industry perspective, I think really a lot of the breakthroughs are just coming in in a lot of the things that we've talked about, which are how do we think about different and innovative ways to help address the the burgeoning of just mental health need across the acuity spectrum. And I think traditionally the way that mental health and maybe psychiatry was viewed was to just, just think about the medication. And I think there is a time and place for medication and uh, and a lot of industry sort of research would kind of be geared around that. There are some interesting, I'd say, experimental treatments that are under investigation for more severe forms of mental health conditions, be it through psychedelics being repurposed, some ketamine derivative treatments. And what's also interesting is from the FDA perspective, there have been digital therapeutics that are beginning to be approved for treatment. And so these are apps that really help folks um, sort of manage symptoms and and create plans that help them kind of abstract uh, cognitive behavioral therapy in a, in a digital way. And even some uh, artificially intelligent chatbots that have been given the FDA approval to uh, basically talk with folks on an individual basis to, to sort of help them through various stressors. And they're showing to be somewhat efficacious. So I think there's just a, kind of this explosion of creativity in terms of the products that people may use, be it medical, pharmaceutical, or, or digital for helping on some of the, the higher acuity ends of the spectrum. And then just service-based in terms of how do we think about who can help somebody through a life stressor? How do we think about just training those folks to reach more people and make people feel more comfortable? Just recognizing that, as you've mentioned, mental health is really important. And it's not something that we should feel ashamed to, to try and prioritize. I'd certainly love to see more police budgets being refocused towards mental health and training for community members and community, you know, social workers and others to be able to make that a more of a first line of defense uh, when there's you know a mental health crisis for an individual rather than showing up with guns drawn. Nitty, maybe you could give us some more thoughts on some other tech-based interventions. 
Absolutely. I'm happy to. Yeah, there's been some really cool advancements, especially over these last couple of years. So one is uh, some really cool video game-based biofeedback technology that allows children, adolescents, and adults to play video games, and it helps them to regulate their nervous system. So for example, like some of the games involve, um, you know, steering a boat and being able to, like Mario style, get these um, little coins that are in the air and catching air and things like that. But it's all dependent on your respiration and being able to stay with in a particular range. So I think that those type of gamifications of mental health treatment can be so incredibly powerful, especially for kids and teens that may be resistant to talk therapy or even adults that you know may have ADD and uh, benefit more from something that's going to be engaging from like a full sensory perspective. I think that that's been a really uh, cool innovation to see over the last few years here. Another technology that I got to see right before the pandemic and somebody, I can't remember the company that was right on the forefront of this, but they essentially created a VR, virtual reality version of a meditation. And so essentially what you do is you put on these VR goggles, it immerses you in this underwater scene. You're literally swimming down in the ocean with dolphins and fish. And it's a full experience where you're you're quite grounded. Uh, it helps with individuals that may be struggling with flashbacks or PTSD symptoms to help to, to re-regulate their nervous system as well. So those are a couple, you know, right off the top of my head. I do know uh, that the NFT universe also has been kind of dabbling in mental health. And I know Dr. Carlene has had some experience in this as well, but NFTs like Blazed Cats, for example, have been raising money and awareness for mental health organizations. And I know that uh, there's so many uh, individuals out there in the metaverse that are thinking about ways to create communities and systems that will support mental health. So I think that these types of interventions are on the advent and kind of on the cutting edge of what we're looking at in terms of tech and mental health. That's amazing. Really cool ideas there. Uh, so in a second, I'm going to have you guys each give us one final tip on how we can reduce anxiety in our own lives. Some, you know, some strategy that you think is actually consistently works to lessen anxiety in your own life. For that, I'm going to give some quick updates and some thoughts on the top takeaways from our, our talk today. Before the pandemic even hit, we were dealing with a shortage of providers and still an existence of a stigma against mental health while that was getting better uh, and a lack of insurance coverage. And COVID has only accelerated these trends. But finally, we're at least seeing some modality shifts. Telehealth is this silver lining. It's gone from 5% adoption to 95% at its peak and is now settling at 75%, which really shows we aren't going backwards. We're not going back to the way things used to be. This is a great opportunity for people to see a therapist without having to go into an office, without having to wait in a waiting room and feel like you're, you know, have all these eyes on you and just be able to fit it into your busy schedules. And I think that that just making it more convenient is critically important to democratizing access to care. And Nitty told us that, you know, therapists have never been fuller. They're seeing more clients than ever because isolation from COVID, the crushing dread of the uncertainty of what's going to happen with all this job security, isolation from being stuck in work from home situations, or just the massive disruption to how we normally lived our lives uh, is leading to this increase, which uh, you know, growth therapy says has resulted in a 300% increase in depression and anxiety. So that really just puts a, a button on how important this issue is and how we need some, some different approaches. And one of the core 
systemic issues here is that employer paid plans take the agency for mental health care out of the individual and put it onto the employer. And, you know, this all started after enduring World War II when wage caps came into place. Uh, and so employers started to offer health insurance for free alongside their salaries as a way to entice employees. But over time, that meant that it wasn't you who got to decide based on what the best care was. It was really your employer just looking for whatever the cheapest way to say they're offering the same level of care. And you know what that meant was that somebody who really only cared about your health, mental health, physical health for the next three years was in control of your health outcomes and your health insurance. Because after those three years, you're probably going to leave to go to another company anyway. So what do they care if you end those three years totally burnt out or physically injured? And so you know, it wasn't until sort of the post-COVID era that we're seeing an acceleration of prioritization amongst mental health at companies and as part of benefits programs, in part because I think they finally realize that you are losing a ton ton of productivity by having these unhappy, unsatisfied workers who are dealing with these mental health issues. Um, Dr. Emily Anhalt gave us such an incredible quote, the idea that, you know, that burnout is the workplace injury of the 21st century. You know, if we used to work with our bodies on factory lines uh, and it was physical injuries that were really causing uh, you know, reductions in productivity, we work with our minds now. So many of us are information workers. And when our minds get injured, it makes it incredibly difficult to do that kind of complex, abstract thinking. But paying therapists less is not the right approach. And what you may end up with is just like rookies who don't have enough experience or people who are totally overbooked and can't really be fully present to help people. And it costs too much to become a therapist. It takes a really long time. You need this really broad education, even though you might not always be dealing with people that need full-fledged therapy. Some of them might just need coaching. And so we think we might need new accreditation for coaches that can be something sort of sub-therapist level. We also need better interaction between therapists and coaches, where therapists can say, hey, I could probably pass you off to a coach, which might be able to help you succeed more in your career if you're already on a decent level in terms of your mental health, whereas coaches should be able to say, hey, I think this is beyond the scope of what I can help with. Go see a therapist. But that also means we need better regulation so that therapists can see people across state lines, so it doesn't cost nearly as much to get that accreditation. And we need tools like Grow, which is empowering therapists to start their own practices by giving them billing software, a virtual receptionist that can help them book their calls, marketing help, and more so that these people can get out from under the thumb of employers that are exploiting them for their mental health service labor and instead start their own practices, ideally where they can even specialize in specific things that they really care about treating and that they become experts in so that everybody, no matter what type of mental health care you need, can find a specialist. But we also need to think about prevention, getting in earlier than just waiting until we're mentally injured. As Dr. Emily Anhalt talked to us about, COA, her company, is kind of a gym for mental health. If you can do more of these proactive measures, maybe you'll never get to the point where uh, you actually feel fully injured and you can continue working. And at the same time, there's a great opportunity for everybody out there to play a part in this, whether you're building these new kind of interventions, you know, where those are psychedelics uh, to deal with like heavy traumas, chatbots for talking people through stressors, uh, community mental health over policing, video games that use your breathing or other biometric attributes to help you uh, to play games and, and focus on that mental health, VR meditation rooms, NFTs that lead to health donations. But I think the most important thing any of us could probably do is just talk more publicly. Talk more publicly about the issues that you're dealing with, 
be willing to expose your vulnerability and know that people are going to support you in that. They're actually going to be proud of you because they know that it's opening the door for other people to be able to talk about those issues and go the next step. Don't just talk about the vulnerabilities. Don't just talk about the issues. Tell people that you're seeing a therapist. Tell people that you're seeing a coach and know that that's going to open up and destigmatize this for so many people around you and might lead to them finally getting care. So thank you guys so much for being here with us today on Press Club to talk about this mental health issue. So I want to leave you guys with each of our panelists giving one great strategy that they've found is really valuable for reducing anxiety and depression in their lives. Um, so maybe we could start with uh, with you, Dr. Emily Anhalt. Sure. So I'm actually going to tell a story and I've told this story many times. So apologies if you've heard it, but I want to share the best piece of advice I've ever gotten in my life. And it has to do with dealing with anxiety. So a number of years ago, I had a family member in the hospital and it was looking very bleak. It was looking like I was likely going to lose this person. And I was absolutely distraught, just didn't know what I was going to do if I lost this person. So we had a family friend come over who was a psychologist and an oncologist. So he dealt with a lot of loss. And I said to him, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to handle it if this person dies? And he said, Emily, the version of you that is going to handle that painful thing, if and when it happens, will be born into existence in that moment. And that version of you will have more life experience and more time and more wisdom to figure out what to do. So for now, you need to trust your future self to handle future problems. And you need to focus on only handling this present moment. Past you, trusted present you to deal with now, you have to trust future you to deal with later. And so now anytime I'm feeling anxious or getting ahead of myself or worried about something that will or may or may not happen, I remind myself, you know what? Future me is a badass. She will figure it out. She will handle it. I'm just going to focus on what's true right now. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. Minaj, what's your tip? One of the things that we've structurally done for a team at, at Grow uh, that we're pretty proud of and I think it, it has worked really nicely is one of our teammates suggested the idea of a mental health morning. And so now everyone across our team basically has one day of the week where they start work two hours later than they typically would. And what they do in those two hours is completely up to them as long as it's sort of working towards prioritizing their, their mental wellness. And so uh, for me, you know, that, that's a time and space where I can just have freedom to meditate, to not think about work in the middle of the week which otherwise, you know, you'd just be going day after day after day until your weekend and just not really have much of a break mentally. If your employer doesn't offer this, it's a kind of new thing that we thought of and maybe we should share this idea more broadly. But what I did even before that was I would just try to go to sleep earlier than I used to and then wake up a little bit earlier in the morning and just try to find some time and space for myself while I wasn't exhausted like I would be in the evening if I did that and just have some quiet to myself and meditate. And structurally, just finding that time, I think is super important before the day gets started. That's a great tip. Jake, what about you? For me, I feel that sleep is one of the most deterministic factors in the day that I have. I realize there's some circularity here between feeling anxious and getting good sleep, but I do everything in my power to uh, get a good night's sleep. Everything from blackout shades to reading before bed to separating where I have a TV from where my bed is to I actually bought this like using blue light glasses later in the evenings. Whatever you have to do to get a good night's sleep, it'll be well worth it. That's great. Totally agree. Nitty? 
I would say that for me, I've always told my clients and myself as someone who has been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, that anxiety is always about the shoulda, coulda, wouldas of the past or the what ifs of the future. And that the antidote to anxiety is being able to stay grounded and present in the here and now. So one of my favorite exercises that I like to do is an orienting exercise where I use my eyes, ears, and neck to notice my surroundings. I pay attention to something from each of my five senses, something I see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. And it helps to get me out of those racing thoughts and out of that anxious brain right back into my body. So that would be my tip. That's beautiful. I think my personal tip is just remembering that grief specifically is not something that you have to minimize. You don't have to shrink the grief inside of you, which can often feel impossible. But when you deal with something that is worthy of grieving, think of it instead of it shrinking inside of you, of you growing around it. It's always going to be there. That loss of a loved one, you're not trying to forget them. You're not trying to forget the grief, but you are trying to grow to be the kind of space that you have more space inside of you to fill with other things that do bring you joy and that make you happy. And so I hope whatever it is that is affecting you, you find help for it. You make time for yourself. You explore all these amazing new interventions and you remember that you are worth it. You are worth having wonderful mental health and it's worth making whatever changes are necessary for you to get there. So thank you guys so much for being here this week on Press Club. I'm Josh Constein, where we bring together the big names in tech to talk about the big ideas. If you're building something in this space, I'd love to hear about it. Our venture fund, Signal Fire, is investing in companies seed to series B. We're investors in growth therapy, and we're big believers in telehealth. So we would love to hear about what you're building. We specialize in helping with recruiting. We built recruiting technology that can list you hundreds of the best people for any given role you need. So if you need help building that team so you can get back to building that product that you can really make a difference in the world, please come talk to us at Signal Fire. I'd love to hear it. You can DM me or reach me however you'd like. We love having you here. It means the world to me to have your ears. I know your time is your most important, important resource. So please go spend it wisely. Go spend it on yourself. Go take care of yourself. And from us here at Press Club, we love you all. Farewell. We'll see you next week. Thanks again. I'm Josh Constantine. Goodbye.